Night with Sarah Hendy. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Faster Mai and welcome to the programme. This evening we're joined by conductor of the Isle of Man Symphony Orchestra, Maurice Powell, who'll be taking us through the programme for the orchestra's summer concerts taking place this weekend. This weekend, the Isle of Man Symphony Orchestra will be playing their summer concerts this Saturday at half past seven at Ramsey Grammar School's West Hall and this Sunday afternoon at half past two at King William's College. I'm joined in the studio by conductor Maurice Powell, whose dulcet tones you may recognise from our Thursday evening A Little Light Music programme every week at nine o'clock. Now, Maurice, I'm sure you have some tales to intrigue us. This year's programme is varied and the first thing that caught my eye was on the programme I saw that the GCSE music set work is to be played. Is this by design or coincidence? Um, about three years ago, um, I believe we were approached by one of the music teachers on the island and um, said, uh, oh, were we aware that this or this this piece of music was coming up for GCSE. Was there any possibility of programming it? And we did. I can't remember now what the first one was. Um, but we, uh, we we programmed, I think, two works in our spring concert that were coming up on the syllabus. And um, I think three or maybe even four of the of the grammar schools here all sent pupils to the concert so they could hear these works live and we made a special price for them or absolutely packed out mm-hmm. and it happened the next the next year the same thing happened again and in fact we've kept some of our uh, young audience um, I think they've suddenly got a taste for live concerts because they're obviously quite difficult dif- different from hearing the same piece on a CD in the classroom so uh, it's been a very good spin-off now this year um, slightly different we were thwarted to an extent because our spring concert was cancelled and it's now become our summer concert which we're going to talk about shortly um, but the uh, the Mozart Piano Concerto number 21 is a set piece and although I think it will be a little late for most people because they will have already studied it nevertheless it would be worth hearing it live um, so hopefully uh, hopefully we'll get a, a um, some of our school's audience back which is uh, which is great so you're right, there, was, there is a connection. And there always will be. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I should know this because I actually conduct the orchestra, but you know how it goes. I'm the last to be told. But I, I believe we already know what the set works are for GCSE and A-level next year. And I believe we're already um, going to programme one of them. And it's just coming to me now through the ether. It's uh, by Samuel Barber. It's not the famous Adagio. It's called Knoxville 1915 and it's a fairly short piece for strings and soprano soloist most unusual very beautiful and so we're hopefully going to program that for our spring concert in 2022 so that's become an ongoing thing and it's great for us because it means we have a a built-in focus if you like for for our spring concerts Absolutely. And um, what kind of information can you give us to to bring a little context to Mozart's 21st Piano Concerto to help us understand it a little bit better? Um, Stories, words of wisdom? Um, Probably no words of wisdom. They've all been (laughs) said many times about Mozart. But what I would say is, first of all, there is no doubt 
that the experience of live music, whatever kind of music it is, from one fiddle in a in the street up to a, a massive symphony orchestra and chorus, it doesn't matter. The experience of live music is vital. It's the missing element between composer and audience, if you like, if and 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 the, and the performers. If you don't, if it's not live, okay. Um, <clears throat> about Mozart, Mozart's piano concertos, and he wrote twenty-seven of them. Um, and I would say that probably fifteen or sixteen are masterpieces by anyone's standards, which means because it's Mozart, the standard is very high. Um, these are special. Um, we get used to the idea of the big romantic concerto, Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, Brahms, um, as a kind of a contest, a battle between the soloist, um, who's thumping their way through 40 minutes of music, battling against a huge orchestra. And in many ways, that's how these works were conceived. But with Mozart, it's, it's much more intimate. Uh, we must remember that Mozart wrote these concertos, nearly all of them, for himself to play. So he organised the concerts, he was his own entrepreneur, he wrote the music, he played the solos, he directed the concerts, he even organised the tickets and took the money at the end. Um, so he's right in the centre. Now, with the piano concertos, there's a, a unique relationship between the soloist the pianist and the orchestra they're much more sort of blended in with each other taking over from each other passing the musical themes the musical argument from one to the other in a very intimate way like a like a conversation the most magnificent conversation you can imagine and i think this here's a little bit more difficult people might disagree but i think that the Mozart piano concertos, the piano part, is the closest we can get to Mozart himself, his musical personality. It's like the Bach organ works. We imagine Bach alone in his organ loft in Leipzig, just improvising these amazing things. That is the real Bach. With Mozart, the piano concertos are the real Mozart. It's, it's Mozart's voice, the closest that we can get to it. So, basically... For very little money, anybody coming to this concert gets all that. A private one-to-one -one with Mozart. It doesn't get any better, Sarah. Heck, what a bargain. And not only that, but you also get to enjoy Mendelssohn's Overture, Calm Sea and a Prosperous Voyage. What can you tell us about that piece? Very unusual piece, which we've never programmed before, and I can't find any record of it having been played on the island, certainly going back five decades of programmes and, and news reports. And it's not performed as often, perhaps, as it should be. Um, it's a piece of programme music. In other words, it's, it, it actually tells a story. The inspiration was um, two short poems by Germany's greatest poet, Goethe. Um, which were based on an experience that the poet had himself of being becalmed in very dangerous waters. And then suddenly the, the, the wind came and the ship was able to move forward with, with great relief. And he put all this into two very short poems, Calm Sea and Prosperous Voice. But they're always linked together because they're very short. It would take 20 seconds to read them both. Um, they're quite evocative and they... they certainly appealed very much to the German imagination because Beethoven also was very much attracted to these two poems and he wrote a short piece for choir and orchestra based on them. But Mendelssohn had the idea that he could 
get to the the nub of the poem, the essence of it, without the use of singers and a choir. He would just write a piece of orchestral music. And, of course, it's quite descriptive. There's a, a, a rather long, slow section, which is obviously the becalmed, um, the calm sea. Um, and then there's a, a brief fluttering of wind. And then the second part, the second part of the poem, Prosperous Voyage, um, comes ahead. So there's quite a bit of... of um, musical painting if I can put it that way of the sea the wind it's a wonderful piece it's quite restrained I mean there are no great storms here they're not attacked by giant squid they're not attacked by cannibals when they land it's it's a it's more of an inward journey as well I think this is why it appealed to composers like Beethoven for example there's got to be something more than just a story to get Beethoven interested um, and with Mendelssohn as well so it's a very interesting piece very colourful um, very Mendelssohn so if you like things like um, the Hebrides Overture um, uh, then you'll know what territory you're in but because it's so very little known um, I think it'll be a pleasant surprise they're so short we've actually going to print the two poems um, in the program, mm-hmm. so that the audience can just check out how well Mendelssohn did and give him a mark at the end of the overture, maybe eight out of ten, I don't know, whatever. Um, but uh, no, it's 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 useful uh, w- when the text is so short, just to be able to refer to it um, and uh, just to see what it was that that inspired uh, Mendelssohn to write this piece. Well, as a cheeky little treat, I'm sure you know that um, on late lunch, Howard Kane often has you, Virtual Morris, as his co-host um, if uh, Christie is off swimming in the sea and things. I've heard about this. I'm, 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 my, of course, my approval uh, was not sought, and it's not been reflected in my fee, by the way, but, but we'll let that pass. I'm, I'm not bitter or anything like that. Well, um, by, by way of um, sort of... Uh, returning the favour shall we say Howard will switch to virtual Howard now who um, I will ask to share these poems with us they are very short as you say um, but he has a lovely voice for poetry so here we are virtual Howard please uh, please recite for us those two poems Calm Sea and Prosperous Voyage if you will Silence Deep rules over the waters Calmly slumbering lies the main while sailor views with trouble naught but one vast level plain. Not a zephyr is in motion. Silence, fearful as the grave, in the mighty waste of ocean, sunk to rest is every wave. The mist is fast clearing and radiant as heaven while earless loosens our anguish-fraught bond. The zephyrs are sighing, alert is the sailor. Quick, nimbly be plying, the distance approaches icy land beyond. Well, thank you, Virtual Howard, for that very pleasant recital. And of course, those poems will be printed in the concert programme for you to refer to. Next on the agenda, though, Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, Morris. How does that compare to the other two pieces? What kind of journey are we going on in this one? Oh, well, um, <laughs> with Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, the, certainly myself and the orchestra have been on quite a journey because um, it has a certain reputation, the Eighth Symphony, as, as being a kind of an also-ran. If, if you think of Beethoven's symphonies as a very unruly family, most of whom are stark raving mad, then the Eighth, even the Eighth, is odd. Even, even in that company, the Eighth is an odd symphony. 
I mean, it's been it's it's been kind of dismissed. It comes between the seventh, which is a great rollicking, rhythmic, colourful piece, and of course the ninth, which is enormous, and and then has the choir and soloists at the end as well. So it's a kind of a little baby thing, and people have often tried to dismiss it as being oh, well, it's a throwback to you know it's, it 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 couldn't be bothered. So he thought he'd write something in the style of Haydn and or Mozart and uh, see if he could get away with it, um, and. Um, <laughs> We started to approach it in that way, really, trying to find connections in the music um, between the later 18th century, the Haydn and Mozart symphonies. But we soon found out that Beethoven is not to be trusted, particularly in what he says about uh, his own music. He actually said at one point that this was his favourite symphony. Um, You think, well, that's hard to believe. What about the fifth or the Eroica? or the ninth to come. I mean, they're so different and massive. Um, So what did he mean? Well, I think what he meant was that this symphony um, was going to be whimsical, certainly, slightly backward-looking in some ways, but every movement's going to pack a punch, which you're just not expecting. So the first movement starts out almost as if it could have been written by Haydn or Mozart, but then develops into something quite dramatic and forceful. So you're only a few minutes in, and you're thinking, just a minute, what's going on here? This is Beethoven's working himself up into his usual dramatic climax, and it has become a very powerful movement. You're lulled now and again into into a, a false, what's it? I can't think of the word. Yeah, sort of, because he brings in some lovely lyrical bits, but they're very soon trumped by something more dramatic. So the first movement is not quite what it seems. The the so-called slow movement um, isn't slow. It's a kind of a moderately placed uh, scherzando, and it sounds like something out of a French ballet. Uh, It's got a cheeky little tune, a little marching rhythm in the wind, and it has all sorts of sudden bumps and knocks and crashes, which you don't expect. Instead of just fading out quietly, like you'd expect a symphonic slow movement to do, it ends as if it was rushing helter-skelter at the end of a finale. A completely bizarre movement. The scherzo, which normally comes next, which is a very fast-paced, one-in-a-bar movement, isn't a scherzo at all. It goes back to an old three-in-the-bar plodding minuet or landler, almost like a rustic Austrian dance. So that must have been a bit of a surprise to the listeners at the time, because they would not have been expecting that. And that's quite delightful. It has solo parts for the horns, clarinet... Again, the whole thing is like an evocation of a village dance. Like you sort of you, you went out onto the outskirts of Vienna during the new wine festival and there was a village band playing and everybody supping the new wine, a bit of dancing. And he kind of portrays this in a, in a really comical way. And then you get to the last movement and you think, ah, well, this will be bright and breezy, nice tune, send everybody home happy. Not at all. The last movement turns out to be an absolute monster, the biggest movement of all. And although it starts off with a whimsical little theme, it builds up into a series of great climaxes. It goes through every key 
in the book. And I was <laughs> we were rehearsing this last night, and a particularly awkward passive about a hundred bars, where it passes through lots of different, totally unrelated keys. It's like starting a conversation with somebody, and then somebody comes in and interrupts you with a conversation on a totally different subject. It all works out in the end, but what should be a lightweight finale in a sort of Haydn manner, clever, sophisticated, tuneful, everybody happy, turns out to be the most powerful movement of all. And it's full of surprises and tricks and terrible musical jokes. Um, well, all I can say is that uh, if, if the Eighth Symphony of Beethoven is not one that you know well and that you've always underestimated it, prepare to be surprised. Well, certainly, it sounds it. What kind of what part of his life was he in when he wrote this? It sounds like he was having quite a quite an interesting time to be writing something <laughs> so um, patchworked and erratic. Beautifully understated, Sarah, if I may say so. There isn't a there isn't a period of Beethoven's life that wasn't interesting in some way. This was a quite a depressing time in some ways. Um, we're talking around 1811, 1812. So it's what musicologists like to think of Beethoven's middle period. Um, Beethoven's life, unfortunately for him and everybody else, falls into three kind of patterns, although so we're told. There's obviously an early period, the early works, a middle period, then the late works, which include things like the, the last string quartets and sonatas um, and the Missa Solemnis. These, these works are on a completely different level altogether. There's no doubt about that. The middle period works contain most of the works that we know really well, the, the piano concertos, the famous symphonies, of course, uh, and so on. The Eighth Symphony came at a time when, when Beethoven was taking a, his annual summer break in one of the outlying villages. I think it might have been Merdling. I'm not absolutely certain. I can't remember. I should know. Um, um, and he was a pretty, uh, quite depressed. He was quite low. When he got to this place, he found that there were very few people around. You know, he was. He thought he was going to be with some sort of society as he normally was. You know, there'd be painters and poets and a few intellectuals, interesting people. Um, perhaps even some of the nobility will be having their at their summer palaces, and he will be able to mix and and talk and 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 uh, just relax in the summer. Um, but when he got there, he found the fact that very few people were there. And he was also, at that time, trying to recover from the the, uh, the, the most recent of a series of totally disastrous attempts at a relationship. Beethoven, being Beethoven, was totally incapable of forming um, a relationship with a woman. And he desperately longed for one all his life. It was just, It was one of the... It was a source of a lot of his problems. He fell out with his sister over over a nephew and because he didn't know how to handle families and because he'd never had a family. So he was desperate and he always chose highly born, wealthy ladies, some of whom were already married, who couldn't possibly, for all sorts of reasons, return his affections. And it was in this period that he wrote the famous letter to the immortal beloved who has not been named and people have been trying to identify for, for years uh, without really nailing down who it actually was. But it was obviously a highly born lady, as I say, probably married. Beethoven absolutely adored her. He built her up and he wrote a letter to the immortal beloved. He never posted that letter. 
he never received it. Um, but the letter stands as a kind of a testament to be how Beethoven felt about this particular woman. Now, uh, whilst he was recovering from this and feeling a bit neglected and all the rest of it, he wrote the Eighth Symphony. Now, that might account for some of its bizarreness, but it's very dangerous to sort of... Uh, say, well, something like a really sad symphony or a highly emotional symphony is directly related to the events in a composer's life. It's nearly always a mistake. But you have to think there's something here. And he was kind of maybe to write himself out of this state of depression and disappointment. Um, I, I wouldn't speculate any more than that, quite honestly. Interesting piece written in interesting times. Absolutely, and it would be very interesting to hear it as well. Now, on the programme, I see you have an orchestra leader, uh, Tom Field. What's his role in the concert? The leader of the orchestra always sits at the front of the first violins. Mm -hmm. um, people often ask, well, why does an orchestra need a leader when you've got a conductor? Um, well, of course, at one time, there was no conductor. I mean, in Beethoven's day, for example... Um, except with opera and ballet, where you had huge forces to try and control, or possibly a, something with a big choir. Um, symphonies and concertos were not conducted in the sense they are today, with someone standing at the front waving a stick. Um, in the case of a piano concerto like the Mozart one, Mozart would have directed the performance from the piano. In other words, he'd have been playing the piano nodding people in for their different entries, starting, stopping, setting the speeds. And this job was pretty much shared between the principal violinist and a keyboard player right well into Beethoven's day. Um, eventually, people got the idea that, well, actually a conductor at the front controlling the whole operation would mean much greater accuracy, which, of course, it did. And as music got more complex and symphonies got longer and orchestras got bigger... Obviously, it was a sensible thing to do. So during Beethoven's time, the use of the baton and the conductor in the traditional sense that we would understand became more and more frequent. Um, Beethoven himself conducted some of his symphonies, but of course the poor man was completely deaf um, by the time he was doing this. And even though he was conducting, the orchestras were warned, don't watch him because he has no idea where he is. And there's a very sad story that at the end of the Ninth Symphony, he finished conducting and the orchestra finished playing, but he had no idea and someone had to come up on the stage and turn him round to face the audience to receive the applause, which he couldn't hear. I think that's incredibly sad. There are lots of stories about Beethoven and his deafness. It was a totally um, crippling business for him. But, of course, it forced himself even deeper into himself. And you could say, well, had he not been deaf, would we have had the last six string quartets? I don't know. There again, I dare not speculate. One just wonders.
and wonder we shall. Thank you, Morris. Get your tickets at the Lexicon and Bridge Bookshops and pop along to Ramsey Grammar School this Saturday the 3rd or King Williams College this Sunday the 4th. More information can be found at iomso.im. That's all we have time for this week, but do join me again next Wednesday at 6. And don't forget, you can find the programme as a podcast at manxradio.com. Have a lovely creative week. Slen you.